if you are dealing in sort of a high stake situation, you want to move fast. So you've gone slow in advance. You've got tons of data. So then now when you're in the seat, you know, hitting the clutch pedal, like you engage. <laughs> that going slow is doing the work to understand this is the bet we should make. And then the moment that window opens, you, you try to execute that very quickly. Welcome to Leap. I'm Tina Seelig. I'm passionate about helping people craft the futures they dream of creating. And that's what I do at Stanford University, where I teach classes on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. This podcast takes a deep dive into how to launch your career by unpacking the often overlooked and undertaught soft skills critical to the success of every entrepreneur. In each episode, we'll invite two people from very different career stages to discuss real-life scenarios. I'm Jessica Varelli, and I'm a general partner at GV, formerly Google Ventures, and a founding partner of Hashtag Angels. I'm Andrew Scheuermann, CEO and co-founder of Arch Systems. Today, we tackle negotiation. I think the best negotiations feel like relationship building. The hardest negotiations are the ones where you have no good basis for relationship. Mm -hmm. A big part of negotiation, it's just communication around expectations and what two people want in terms of a desired outcome. And I think the best negotiations actually don't feel like negotiations at all. Negotiations require you to develop relationships with another person. Much like building a house, relationships take work. The very first step to building a sturdy house is laying a solid foundation. You need to find common ground, mutual understandings, and build respect for one another. It's important to lay that foundation before you start adding the frame. And you need to make sure that you aren't getting distracted by little things when you're just getting started. For example, why would you fight over the color of the walls before you've even built them? I think you always want to start from first principles. And before you enter a negotiation, you want to, first and foremost, think about goals. What do we want out of this? Who is we? We may be, in the case of the work I did to acquire companies, I was advocating on behalf of the company. What are the company's goals when we're going to acquire this company? If I was acting on myself, what do I want out of this job offer? What are my expectations and hopes for this role? And that might be a combination of here's the title I want, here's the salary I want, here's the equity compensation I want, here's the path I want, or here's the influence I want. Who knows? But before you enter a negotiation, it is always worth reflecting on that and forcing yourself to get somewhat precise about it. There's a, a corollary to this story, which is, you know, I'm thinking from the employer's perspective, I'm, <laughs> you know, Thinking about all You're the, on the, other side of the, the negotiations <laughs> I've had with folks, and it, it made me think of an employee recently who was negotiating with me who also cared a lot about title. Mm. And in this case, they weren't going for a VP, a title that actually was a specific one in our hierarchy. It mm-hmm. was an engineer that wanted a different like type of title. They knew that this was a really important point in their head. And uh, we spent a lot of the time kind of discussing about that and 
the person kept like reiterating that they really wanted this title. And I, I, you know, so I said, well, all right, you know, let me think about it. And, you know, (laughs) and we spent a lot of the time and and you realize you can only push so many points, right? But how do you ferret out? How do you figure out the interests of the person on the other side? Because that's where you can get stuck, right? If I don't know that that's something that you don't care about or do care about, I'm often going to negotiate for the wrong things. You know, I I mentioned first and foremost, understanding what you want, Mm -hmm. but immediately after that, figure out what they want. And the simplest way to do that is just to ask. Listen carefully, because in those conversations, which, you know, maybe a half an hour meeting, maybe hours, maybe over dinner, maybe over drinks, maybe in an office, if you listen intently, you have all of the answers to set everything else up for success. Breaking bread together is an important tool for building relationships, which we know is crucial for successful negotiation. So many people think that negotiation is an adversarial game, when in fact, it's really more of a dance. It's important that dance partners know the steps to the dance so that you aren't stepping on each other's toes. But even more important, you need to agree on what type of dance you're engaged in. A waltz is very different from a tango. You might have very different rules and styles for negotiating, so understanding your partner's rhythm is really important as a first step. The manufacturing space can be pretty brutal, and uh, these guys are used to negotiating some of the nastiest vendor agreements and, you know, when things don't go well, making sure that they try to get their money back, those sorts of things. So I've been in a lot of negotiations where we've actually already negotiated the deal. We've already locked it. And you can't dig into your legal terms exactly and say, like, you try as best you can, especially as, as a company gets older and more mature. You get really well at making really clear kind of when the job is over. Yeah, I think there's a ton of variance in how people approach this. It is a rational way to engage in a negotiate, to be candid and to be open about your interests and to give people the context that I alluded to in terms of what matters to you. That strategy works if you trust the other party. And so I would always enter these conversations trying to build trust. Let me tell you a little bit about, you know, our interests and how we're thinking about this and some of the dynamics I'm going to have to navigate internally so that he or she would understand where I was coming from. And they would oftentimes be candid and open with me in return. That sets a, a dynamic, basically, for the way the rest of the conversation will play out. And so I think it's important to think through what are my goals, what are their goals, what are the other circumstances that are influencing what this company is trying to achieve or what this, you know, what this founder is looking for? I used to coach and referee fencing. And when you watch a fencing match, you have two combatants, right, which we said negotiations not always competing, but, you know, going back and forth, pushing each other down the strip. And what we always used to say to all of our fencers is whoever is leading wins. And, and it's true. Whoever is leading almost always wins the match. Now, the person that's leading is not the person that's going forward necessarily. It's often actually the person that's going backwards. So the person that's going backwards took the step back first, which caused the other fencer to be pulled towards them. So if if you can be the first one to to figure out how to make this a win-win, you're likely to be able to 
put a lot of your interests into it, whether you're pushing the interests or, in fact, pulling and leaving space, right? And you should try to be aware if, you know, am I leading or am I being led? Fencing is a delicate but powerful sport, with much more going on than meets the eye. The dynamics can change in an instant. Not only is it up to you to recognize when you're in a position of power, but it's also up to you to recognize when you need to slow down, make space, and let the other person come to you. I will add one practical tip here, which is if you are dealing in sort of a high-stake situation, like a competitive, large-scale M&A, you want to move fast. Hmm. Speed matters a lot. If you are trying to win a competitive situation where there's probably a lot of other interested parties, making that commitment, showing conviction, Mm -hmm. and then demonstrating that you as an organization can move quickly and are really committed to this, those factors matter more than it seems. I think one of the things that Silicon Valley does well is speed. Because what typically happens is the person in the power position would take it go slow because they'll like wait the other person out who needs to get a job, they're running out of money, needs to get a financing, whatever. But in Silicon Valley, a lot of times both people are willing to move really fast because they we share the perception that a, a great deal has a special moment. And like ideally you have gone slow in order to go fast so Mm. you've gone slow in advance you've got tons of data so then now when you're in the seat you know hitting the clutch pedal like you engage (laughs) that's really well articulated the notion of going slow so you can go fast actually the the most famous m&a deals in our industry if you sort of peel it back oftentimes the two CEOs have been getting dinner together once every three months over the last year or two. And then you hear in the press that it got done over the weekend, but you don't realize, oh, no, those founders yeah. have been building rapport for literally years. Um, and so that that going slow is doing the work to understand this is the bet we should make. And then the moment that window opens, you you try to execute that very quickly. Now, can I throw out one twist? Yeah, sure, of course. (laughs) So uh, one time when I have specifically moved negotiations slow at Arch is when we needed to pivot the framework of a deal, but I still wanted to close it. A customer deal that I have in mind now where we were moving, we were all moving lightning speed to get to a close, and we agreed on some high-level terms, and we all said great. But then we realized that there were a couple key points that we were diverging on, And I was like, if we don't reframe the interests, we're not actually going to get to a good conclusion. So there are situations that come where when you need to like reframe those interests, if you still want to close, you sometimes do really need to throw the brakes on. So obviously in in the real world, these things are, can be complicated, right? And have a different profile of fast and slow. Knowing when to slow down a negotiation requires you to trust yourself and have confidence in your power. It's one thing to jump in head first when opportunity strikes, but it takes even more confidence and courage to recognize when the negotiation isn't going well and when it's time to walk away. So often in a negotiation, we sort of think that the goal is to come to an agreement, but sometimes (laughs) you shouldn't, right? You know, can you think of a situation where you walked away from something that nobody wanted you to walk away from? 
that was really hard to do, but it was the right thing to do. Not long after we got our, our initial seed funding, a couple million, we likewise suddenly had way more resources than we'd had before, and we made the decision to walk away from one of our bigger customers at the time. You know, we realized that we were in a deep project that wasn't going to be scalable. So, you know, we stepped back, we thought about our interests, thought about their interests, we brainstormed all the different options of ways we could do, and we ultimately decided there's there's really no good form of this project that we think is going to work for them. And so we called the customer, we explained to them our whole reasoning, and they understood ultimately. So we kind of negotiated a <laughs> pull back from the prior agreement and decided not to work together. We found an agreement that they they ultimately like really respected us for. I've in the last couple of weeks, also had two conversations with people that were grappling with big decisions. But when we unpacked it and really listened in both these cases, they actually were not grappling with the decision. They knew the right decision. Hmm. They were grappling with the execution of the decision. Yeah. You know what the right choice is here. It's just really hard to actually go and execute it. And so separating those two can also, I think, be helpful as you encounter these the, these, these bigger moments. And you ever decide that the agreement is not the goal, you should go back. It, it can be done actually really well, and it can also result in better relationship, which is the like, this might work down the road. But what if you aren't in a position of power? How do you behave and what tactics are available to you when the cards are seemingly stacked against you? When you're in the power position, it's kind of easy because, you know, you, you know your goal of the negotiation. You can think about your interest, their interest, and you know your BATNA, right, your best alternative to the negotiated agreement. You know, you can work with somebody else. You don't have to work with them at all. So you can wait it out. When you're in not the power position, like say you're looking for your very first job, you could come at this two ways. You could decide, I need a job in two weeks from now throw out a bunch of offers, you're starting to negotiate with the first position and you have no idea what to talk about. Or you could look at this differently and find some way to structure your your runway. We always say as a, as a startup, you know, I don't actually need a job for four months from now because I saved some, I can hang with a friend, whatever it is. I've got all this time. And now you can start applying for jobs and with the perspective that I may or may not take the first ones that I get. So you apply for that first wave of jobs. These are technically the first offers you're getting, but you're not even trying that hard to negotiate. You're actually building up data points. And then on your second wave of going for jobs, now you actually have other job offers in hand, and you're actually now starting to negotiate from a position of increasing power because your your BATNA is rising. You know, this is a topic I care a lot about because I think – our industry and, and all industries really are full of situations where there's information asymmetry. Mm. The person in the power position has all of the data points on how the company compensates. And so if you're in the situation, where, as you mentioned, you have one job offer, go and get a bunch of other data points and you don't need to have those jobs, but you just, you want to approach the conversation where again, first principles, you can speak with your hiring manager or the recruiting manager and say, I appreciate this job offer and I'm really excited about this role. I want to make sure that I'm paid fairly for the work that I'm doing. And you can then go and do research and you can look online. And then when you get into that situation, you can say, I want to make sure I'm compensated fairly. Here's what I believe based on a bunch of industry data points, this role should be compensated. And my offer was below that. So I'd like to have a conversation about bridging that gap. You can also ask them, help me understand the compensation bands for this role. 
help me understand where I fall within the band for, you know, software engineer one, because I think you can't possibly fault someone for asking to be paid fairly. And if that hiring manager or the, you know, recruiter, if that's a conversation they're not willing to engage in at all, I mean, that might be a pretty unhealthy work environment. The other thing I would say is if you are in the power position, you have a responsibility to be setting compensation and doing this in a way that is data-driven and fair. It is not okay to put the onus on the individual. I love what Andrew and Jess have been saying about finding your strength when you're the underdog. You might not be in charge of the narrative, but you can influence what gets written next if you have the right data. How, if you really are in a position where you don't have a lot of power, how do you muster the confidence to go into a negotiation and really put your best foot forward? Yeah, I see negotiating power like compounding interest. It looks really small at first when you're just figuring out ways to have a little bit more you know, say at the table. But before you know it, it can it can really take off and grow in a in a you know, compounding way. And suddenly you realize that you're able to find yourself in incredible positions. We have a dynamic in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure this exists all over the world, where everyone is coached and socialized to be selling and to be pitching. And in many ways, that served our industry well because it's allowed the startups, the underdogs, to have a shot and to get people to believe in them before they're mature. But on the other hand... It can be a kind of suffocating place when you look around and it feels like everyone's winning and you're not. And I think that the truth is everyone's got a narrative that's the highlight reel. It's the things that are going well. And everyone in every company has got the exact opposite at the same time. The deal they just lost, the investor that said no, and we just don't tell those stories Although you're always hearing the stories of the success in our industry, if you peel this back and you begin to like get to know the people and companies that exist all over here, there's a whole other side that's humbling and it's tough and that's full of failure. And that's okay too. My thought about this is that you just takes practice, right? The more interviews you do, the more opportunities you have, you build your confidence. The first one, I think back to my first job and how totally like a fish out of water. I just felt so uncomfortable. I didn't know what to say or do or where, you know, and over time you start building the confidence because you start seeing, you know, that, hey, I can do this too. And I think that with any aspect of negotiation, the same thing is true. The more you practice, the more confident you get until pretty soon you walk in and go, hey, I've seen this before. Pattern recognition. I know how to have this conversation. I know how to shake this person's hand, how to look them in the eye, how to have this discussion and to hopefully walk out with an offer. 100%. I agree with you. I think this can be learned. And the other tactic that might resonate with some people, have you ever had a friend come and ask you for advice on how he or she should approach a negotiation? And when your friend asks you, you are full of advice on, you deserve that. You should go in there and ask for what you're, you're worth. And, you know, you're sort of building up their confidence and giving them that energy. Imagine, or frankly, just ask your friend <laughs> for that same advice, but, um, uh, try to take a little bit of that same advice and love and encouragement that you would like give to others and, and reflect that back onto yourself. 
I think that helps. Before I started the company, I applied for jobs in all kinds of different areas. And one of the things that gave me the sense of compounding interest was I applied for an academic position. And then I applied at a big company. And then I applied to a small company. And then I applied to go to something completely different. And now when I was like negotiating with a company, it was giving me the creativity to ask for, could you give me a growth position, you know, a mentor that would help me learn these skills? Because when I was looking at going to an academic lab instead of a big company, they were going to offer me these courses on the side. <laughs> and they were kind of like, oh, uh, well, I'm not sure. I mean, that's obviously different than a big company, but we do have this program. There are so many different nuances and ways to think about getting what you want or getting a path towards things that are important to you, where it could be, I really want to be in an environment where I'm going to maximize my learning. So I'm looking for a super fast-moving company where I'm going to be exposed to as many changing dynamics as possible because I think early in my career that's going to that's going to set me up for the most success later. Maybe that's a, an area where you haven't had a chance to grow yet and that is going to be a big stepping stone in your sort of professional path. Or maybe you're at a point that you want to be focused on like having the most impact for your work. Assuming you have a good relationship with the hiring manager, too, I think there's no better way to impress your hiring manager than get a little creative in what you're asking for and show them that you're not only optimizing for cash and you you show them that you understand who you are, you understand a little bit what the company is, and you find those creative avenues. Like You're like, okay, this is the kind of person we need on our team, right? Maggie Neal, a professor at Stanford Business School, always talks about the fact that good negotiations are opportunities for creative problem solving. If you go into a negotiation with that mindset, you're going to end up being much more successful. Negotiating is a skill that can be learned. You have opportunities to negotiate every single day with your colleagues, your partners, your kids, and even your dog. It's all about active listening and understanding each person's interests and finding the best solution for everyone involved. I challenge you to pay attention to the negotiations that are happening every day around you and practicing your skills every day. LEAP is about finding the agency to thrive in our lives and careers. Remember, we create more value when we work together. So please spread the word about LEAP and rate and review us on iTunes. LEAP is a Stanford eCorner original series. The videos, podcasts, and articles on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. LEAP is produced by Ali Rico and Rachel Jolkowski. Jake Smith and Stanford Video are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen is our writer. Daniel Stussy is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Tina Seelig. Thanks for listening.